This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Raw Material, an arts and culture podcast from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. I'm your host and podcaster in residence, Alice Wong. This season I'll be sharing five episodes from my podcast Disability Visibility highlighting disabled artists and curators, and connecting them with artworks in the museum's collection. Today's episode from 2019 features an interview with Jeff Thomas, an urban Iroquois photographer, artist, researcher, public speaker, and curator based in Ottawa, Ontario in Canada. Jeff talks about racism, indigeneity, and colonialism. His photography recontextualizes historical images of First Nations people. We also talk about how art weaves in the past, present, and future. And by the way, you might think I'm a robot, but I'm not. I am using a text-to-speech app which is quite a performance in itself. And keep in mind the app may mispronounce some terms and names but it is what it is. Are you ready? Away we go. So Jeff, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. It's my pleasure. And Jeff, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Okay. I'm Indigenous from the Six Nations Reserve in uh, Southern Ontario. I became a visual artist in 1980 following a car accident. I was 24 years old at the time. I fell asleep at the wheel, lost control of the car. Luckily, my wife only had bruises in that. And my son, he's fine today. When I was uh, went to the hospital and I was paralyzed from uh, from the chest down, they didn't believe that I was, in fact, um, I had a spinal cord injury. I have really big shoulders and it was hard for them to get an x-ray. And they said, well, it's just shock and you'll get over it and things like that. But there was also always this undercurrent of things like, being asked, you know, was I drinking? Was I on drugs? And this kind of thing. One of the doctors had said that I was a, a malingering patient. And um, it, in my mind, that was kind of code for this is an Indian guy who, you know, is just here trying not to get out of going to work or whatever. It, you know, it was like one of those things of lazy Indians and in that they were trying to, you know, to get me animated, to get me moving, pulling me up out of the bed. And, and here I had a fracture my, and my spinal cord was being compressed. So luckily I got out of that hospital after a couple of days and ended up back in Buffalo. They did the same thing in terms of they, uh, they made my condition worse by putting too much pressure, weight on the traction that I was in. And I made a vow. I said that if I can walk out of this hospital, I'm going to do something uh, I'm going to make a contribution to to the world around me, to people that that are part of my world, and so my my idea of you know being out in the world and 
using a cane and having a limp in that and being kind of off center and off balance. I'm always conscious of people looking at me thinking, oh, just another, you know, another tragic Indian story or whatever. So the idea of being marginalized because you're indigenous and then being marginalized again because you're disabled has been really, 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 really challenging in the sense of uh, how do you continue to move forward in the face of, you know, of those attitudes. So it's been really important for me to to always be conscious of what it is that I'm working with and I'm trying to address and to use that as motivation to keep myself going. I don't think that uh, without the help of, uh, you know, the people around me and, and that, that I would have been able to do that, but I'm still working after all these years and proving that, you know, uh, that a disability like that can lead to something that's far more positive than how it began. Well, that's another example of, you know, resistance and survival and how Oh, there's a lot of beauty in that as well. And what did art do for you in terms of helping you explore kind of this new phase of your life as a disabled person? It got me out of the house. I began to really explore the world around me. I've gotten out to see the world in a way that I may not have otherwise. I'm still working, but each year gets more difficult. And my ability to physically get out and photograph has been greatly impaired. So I've accommodated over the years and now I shoot from the car. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, they go to hard school and that they, you know, they learn these techniques. But tell me about being a self-taught artist. Being a self-taught artist has been really good in terms of um, not having uh, the pressure to conform to a specific way of uh, looking at the world through the camera. So I began uh, simply by following my instincts in terms of um, what I wanted to photograph, how I wanted to photograph. And I didn't really think that I needed to go to school in order to develop uh, my technique or my craft because I really knew at 24, 25 what it was that I wanted to accomplish with a camera because my interest in photography and those types of issues began when I was uh, still in high school. I really began with an artist-run center back in Buffalo, New York called SIPA Gallery. And they welcomed me into, into their collective. I didn't have to take workshops or whatever, but I just asked questions and learned and taught myself along the way. Thank you for that. Uh, are there any mentors or elders that you'd like to mention that really supported you and helped you uh, show you the way? 
I was very fortunate uh, growing up in the city that uh, at a certain point I was raised by my uh, paternal grandmother and uh, I would accompany her to the Six Nations Reserve uh, quite often uh, for weekends and summers and things like that. And I was exposed to family elders who had a particular way of looking at the world. Uh, my step-grandfather, Bert General, was uh, a lifetime uh, farmer. And his sister, Emily General, uh, they ran a family farm together, uh, was, a, was really academically motivated. She was a, a, a teacher on the reserve. She uh, organized a theater company. And she also was a social activist as well for, for uh, Haudenosaunee or Iroquois land rights in Ontario. And I translated uh, what I learned from them into what I would pursue uh, with my photographic work. My grandmother was another influence on me as well in terms of a work, work ethic. I also uh, had a mentor in Buffalo. His name was uh, Milton McGovin. He was a social documentary photographer. And I had several visits with him. And he also inspired me as well in terms of, of, of the craft, of integrity, about how you treat people, how you want to be treated, and um, to have really a, a, a social-minded voice in terms of what you want to be able to accomplish with your work. there particular indigenous artists that you're really excited about, you know, their work that really, you know, you know uh, inspires you? The indigenous arts movement is so young in terms of, uh, we're talking, you know, like three or four decades of actual work that's been produced and recognized. But there was one artist in the beginning, his name was Carl Beam. He was from Southern Ontario, uh, Ojibwe artist. And uh, I remember seeing his work in, in an art gallery one time, and it, it just kind of blew the door open for me because of the way that he collaged his work, photographs, historical photographs, uh, drawings, paintings, and things, to uh, come up with what appeared to be kind of an abstract way of looking at the world. But in fact, I found that it was a very clear path to understanding the world from an indigenous perspective and that there was storytelling involved in his work. And I could see how he created a, a platform for people to engage with one another. And that had a very strong impact on me. And it was also very much a part of how I saw the arts world as well, is that it wasn't about the prestige of being a recognized artist or whatever, because the reality for indigenous people in North America is that our history hasn't been told. And consequently, the dominant culture really has no sense of Indians in, in a way of who they are in their own history. Yeah, I do think that, you know, uh, you know, the majority of, you know, indigenous culture and, you know, beauty and representation about indigenous people, you know, is set in the past, you know. You know, I'm curious about how your art, you know, acknowledges the past, present, and future of indigenous people. 
the past, the present, and the future has always been something that's been integral to indigenous cultures. I mean, I understood the fundamentals of that growing up in that, but there was a one time when I was visiting my grandmother on the reserve. We were invited over for Thanksgiving one year, and my step-grandfather was, uh, was husking and braiding white corn. You know, I've seen that before, but for some reason or another, there was something very poignant about what was taking place, so I made photographs of him uh, husking and braiding the white corn. And what I realized is that it came to be emblematic of the work that I wanted to do, which was to say that the past is incorporated through my research with historical photographs. And one of the reasons why I ended up in Ottawa was because I wanted to work at the uh, library and archives here and to research uh, historical photography. The present was really about looking at being honest about identifying who you are and where you come from. And for me, it was to say that I was born and raised in an urban environment. I'm indigenous. And um, and so this is um, the part of my life that I'm working on in terms of an ongoing kind of conversation. And then there's the, uh, the future as well. And how is that incorporated? And I would say that all indigenous cultures say that as a part of their philosophy in terms of how they look at decision-making and that they take into consideration the impact that their decisions today will have seven generations into the future. I think about the, about the preservation of the work that I'm doing and that it will reach into future generations. I did a lot of public speaking in that with school groups and things like that to inspire uh, a youth to be able to, um, uh, to think about these concepts as well and that they are, in fact, the future. And so I developed um, a series of works that uh, bring into a framework images from the past and images from the present. Let's say for youth who uh, maybe 10 or 15 years not from now, I can imagine are still going to be addressing the issues of urbanization and, and the lack of historical content in our lives. So I think about my work and how could it impact somebody in a classroom via the internet, via my website, and um, have an impact on, um, on youth who want to understand or feel that they can understand the issues that I was looking at when I was working. Yeah, speaking of your website, I had a chance to look through a lot of your projects, and you know, I want to say that I really liked uh, your Seize the Space projects, in which over 200 you know, community members participated in a series of photos in front of the monument of Samuel Displayed. And, you know, what was kind of the, the statement you wanted to make? I came to Ottawa in uh, 1992, and it was in the wake of a road trip I made across the United States um, uh, during the period of time that uh, Christopher Columbus's 500th anniversary was being celebrated. And I wanted to get a sense of what commemoration means, uh, how the landscape has been transformed and that. And I felt really dismayed by what I didn't see. And I realized that I could have driven across the United States and back through Canada and not have seen another indigenous person. And that was quite frightening to me. So I was kind of like, well, what am I going to do? How do you photograph the invisible? So a friend said to me, we should go to Ottawa 
And um, there's a monument there for this uh, famous French explorer and colonist, Samuel de Champlain. And at the base of the monument is an Indian figure kneeling, life-size. And so we came up and uh, came up to Ottawa and I saw the monument. There's, a, of course, about 20 feet in the air is the heroic uh, French explorer. At the base of the monument is a nearly uh, naked Indian man on one knee looking subservient to that. And so the question was, is how do you address um, commenting on, on such a prominent and stable public monument? Uh, and there was no marking or plaques or anything around to say who the Indian was, or what he represented or whatever. So it was left open to the public's imagination. And of course, the public has uh, a limited imagination about indigenous people. So I wanted to challenge the monument. I uh, envisioned in my own kind of fantasy way of the Indians. I called him the Indian scout and him actually leaving the monument and where would he go as a 16th century uh, figure my imagination really began to uh, to percolate and uh, by 19 uh, 1996 there was a protest held at the monument by the assembly of first nations which in canada represents uh, all the uh, reserves across canada they wanted the Indian figure removed. And, and so three years later, he was finally removed and placed across the street in another park called Majors Hill Park. I invited a friend of mine to come up and pose on the platform. And he was a performance artist. Uh, his name is Greg Hill. He came up in 2000 and we made some photographs. And he made a life-size canoe that was made from a series of cereal boxes. So we mounted it on the platform and the Indian was kneeling because he was supposed to have been placed in a monument, but they ran out of funding before they could complete it. So he was left for, uh, for all of these decades, looking like he was kneeling at the feet of Champlain. So over the next few years, I invited friends that I knew, academics, artists, and that, to come up and to pose on the platform just to take part in an action calling into question monuments and history and that. And in 2013 uh, was really the highlight of my project. Uh, Greg Hill was uh, curating a, a very large exhibition at the National Gallery of Canada called Sakahan. So over the course of four uh, different uh, dates, the gallery would announce what was going on at the Champlain Monument, and anybody would, could go up to the monument and pose. And so I had a couple hundred people in the end who came up and posed, and I would give them a history lesson on the monument and things like that. And um, and they contributed some contributed some feedback in terms of. Um, their observations of the day and what took place and each participant also received a digital and and an analog uh, print from me in, re in return for posing. And in the earliest part of the project some of uh, the art historian people had a hard time because they said we're so used to analyzing the past or the present in terms of art and not being participants. So it was really interesting for me as a project to begin breaking down those barriers and uh, engaging people and trying to have, you know, something to say overall about about the project. These monuments and statues and like, you know, how buildings are named and streets are named and, you know, we try to forget how they, you know, they glorify colonizers, racists, you know, white supremacists uh, in our history and you know, I am kind of curious about what you think 
you know, what you want your audiences to think about what they are questioning or interrogating, you know, thoughts about ethnicity and just, you know, the history of Canada. Mm-hmm. There was there was one interesting um, sitter that I had during the project in 2013 that was very interesting. And he came up and he said, um, I'd like to pose for you, but I, I lost track of my family. So if I can get them together, will, will you wait for us? So I said, yeah, sure. So he eventually came back and he had brought his wife and uh, five kids. So we got them all on the platform. And um, so we were talking and I was telling him about um, about the uh, the history of the monument with, with his children and that. And so we finished and uh, he went across the street to Majorsville Park, uh, where the Indian Scout now is. And he proceeded to tell his family all of the things that I had told him. And I only found out about this after I sent him the photographs and he sent me back a text that uh, really kind of outlined exactly what had taken place. And I thought that was probably the best scenario for me in terms of um, looking at that monument and the impact that it has because they were not indigenous. And um, so here was a father figure talking about indigenous issues with his children. And I thought, this is really how, um, how a monument should work. And there was another instance where I photographed uh, several uh, university classes around the platform as well. For some of the classes, they were, they were students that came from all over the world. So they were getting a different view and they were participating as well. And I would think about how that would um, spread from, from those students and the story would be told over and over again. That's the best situation for me. For the most part, people don't pay attention to them unless they, they, they are the ones that have been marginalized because of what those monuments represent. I'm always amazed when I'm watching news in the United States and they're talking about people from, you know, from Mexico and from the southern part of North America. They're talking about um, Asian people, about African-American people. And in those uh, kind of lists of people, of marginalized people, they never hardly ever mention uh, Native American or indigenous people. So um, this is really what I want to be able to do is to say that uh, we're here and, um, and to also inspire our own youth and our own communities to do the same thing to uh, take the initiative. So there's also a lot to celebrate as well. Yeah, and I also feel this, you know, as a disabled person, uh, just, you know, this overwhelming need to document our, you know, who we are, what we're doing, and, you know, our images. What are some of the images that you would like to, to see in the future in terms of documenting the full range and, you know, beautiful diversity of First Nations people? What I'm looking at now is more introspective in terms of uh, looking at my own disability in terms of how it's affected my work. How do I begin to incorporate uh, my history as a disabled artist into my work in terms of looking to the future now 
Um, if I can't get out and make photographs, then how do I begin to make photographs in my office uh, in a more detailed way? One of the things that I found that's been always been very difficult is just to look at myself and, and photographs in that. For whatever reasons, I haven't been able to do that. And so this is the next challenge is how do I begin to be able to look at, at my own body and my own limitations in a way and continue to move forward in terms of my body of work. I don't know if people, when they see me and they think, you know, I'm, you know, this is Jeff Thomas. He's, uh, he, he does this type of work and he's also disabled. I've never heard anybody refer to me in that way. And so I've been wondering whether or not it, you know, it's time to turn and to focus more on that because I think it's important for people in our own communities to know that we have lots of challenges, whether it's a physical disability, whether it's a mental disability. Uh, we just have to look at the number of youth that commit suicide across Canada and the United States who are indigenous. And, and, and it's alarming and um, it's scary. And what can we do to help prevent that? How do we begin to inspire youth in our own communities as role models? And there's no escaping that once you take your work and you put it out into the public, you are a role model and you do represent your community in one capacity or another. So it's really about opening the, opening up those senses. I'll give you an example as well. I've also curated exhibitions in many institutions in Canada and some in the United States and some in Europe as well. In 2000, I was commissioned to curate the first photographic exhibition on Indian residential schools. And as a part of my research, I began to look into the history and to the kind of the mindset that led to treating indigenous children in such a horrific way in these schools. And uh, it was it was really alarming. And so um, as a part of my work, the idea was, is how do we get survivors who went to residential schools in our own communities to begin sharing their stories and passing them on to to their children and to their relatives and that and to the larger world as well in terms of of being able to talk about those issues associated with that but it was really i think in terms of pulling back the layers of colonialism and how insidious it is and how quickly you can actually lose track of your identity and your sense of self and your place in the world so how do we begin to um, to bring that back into the conversation? And this is what I've been uh, wanting to be able to do as well with my work. The residential school exhibition opened in 2002 here in Ottawa, and, and we did a traveling exhibition that's still traveling crisscrossing Canada to this day um, and having an impact on communities. So through those photographs, those historical photographs that really were produced in terms of propaganda for the schools, now they've been, uh, they've been looked at and refocused on, well, how do they speak to the issues that we're dealing with today? And although they don't show the horrors that took place in the residential schools, uh, they do open up a window in terms of showing what the schools look like, how children look in relationship to those schools, and also the program of work that was beginning to take place. Did you have anything about, uh, you know, naming ourselves and, you know, claiming all of our identities and, you know, trying to be, 
powerful selves wherever we are. Yeah, that's still a struggle for a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of shape. There's there's a lot of pain involved. You know, trauma. Just a lot of uh, you know. Also, I think you know clearly, you know, social pressure that we are undesirable. That we take too much space. That we don't belong. A lot of people who are you know marginalized have to work up to the to the sense of becoming. Accepting yourself, loving yourself, and also, you know, putting a name to who you are and what you stand for, which is kind of a lifelong journey for most people. Is there any final words you'd like to share in terms of being an artist and just what your hopes are for the future, just maybe your dreams, your own dreams. I suppose that the uh, the biggest thing for me in terms of my work, my dreams, my aspirations, is that I can inspire people to look differently at the world around them, that people can take into account looking at an Indigenous person who's been able to overcome challenges set before him and to use it in a positive way that even though we're limited in one way, the whole world is open in another way, that, you know, that, that we can continue to, um, to move forward, especially, you know, working with, the, in, my, in my instance, of not only the loss of mobility, but living with the constant pain, is that, you know, I've tried, you know, all of the drugs and therapies and things like that, and nothing, nothing has, has really worked effectively, except for my work and whether I'm speaking as I am to you right now or whether I'm speaking in front of an audience um, in a museum or at an opening of my exhibition or engaging people with my photographs, that helps me to forget about it for a while and to just act and engage in a way that is, you know, that feels good. I live by what, what my elder had told me because I would ask her lots of questions and that and she didn't have the answers, but she would always say that if you're if you're not comfortable, if you're if you don't like something, don't complain about it. Do something to change it. And so that's what I've been doing on on many levels. And hopefully that the story that I want to be able to tell will resonate to a larger audience in that way. And of course, you know that's that's why I do this. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for talking with me and sharing your work and your thoughts and you know, your story with me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being invited to speak to you as well. Museums in the art world have a long way to go regarding decolonization. One step is to center indigenous artists like Jeff Thomas and give them power beyond the usual lip service. Everything is connected and I appreciated learning from Jeff how the past, present, and future cannot be separated. For more art that travels through time and space, visit SF Mama's fifth floor to check out a piece called William Scott Reborn as Afro Sheen Kid, 1974. 
disabled artist William Scott is Oakland-based and his work is rooted in personal history. He practices at Creative Growth, an organization for artists with developmental disabilities. His paintings center black people and reimagine the social landscape. His artist statement is futuristic and red as hell. He imagines a spaceship whose purpose is to travel the universe looking for humorous space people. No evil aliens or monsters will be allowed on the ship. I'm booking my ticket now. Visit Raw Materials landing page for additional links to related works of art. While you listen along this season, please note that artwork locations can fluctuate. Be sure to log on to the SF MoMA website to check out what's on view when you stop by. This episode was written, hosted and co-produced by me, Alice Wong. The co-audio producer for this episode was Cheryl Green. Text transcript by Cheryl Green. Theme music by Wheelchair Sports Cam. See you on the flip side. Why you rapping so shitty?